Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then we're up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Tuesday, the 16th of January. Coming up on our program, SARS in the firing line from some political parties over the Palapala scandal. One legal academic questions South Africa's strategy in its genocide application at The Hague. Calls are being made for television licenses to be scrapped. The need for AI ethical guidelines in the medical space in South Africa. And why government response to flooding in KwaZulu-Natal has become a serious human rights issue. Labelling it selective justice, the African Transformation Movement has condemned the revenue service for the role it's playing in the Money in the Sofa Palapala scandal. More on that now from Vuyu Zungula, who speaks for the ATM. So first of all, why does your party believe there's been a lackluster response from SARS as well as other authorities? Um, If you look at the entire um, Palapala scandal in its entirety, one could see that there's a conceited effort to shield the president from accountability. We note that, um, you know, the ones that are occupying political office sometimes do apply political pressure on the institutions when such issues arise. Because if you look at the role, for example, of the South African police services, um, you know, there was no case that was reported. It was only after Mr. Fraser went to public about the theft that the police said there was a case that was reported. If you look at the, the question of SARS, SARS initially said all um, the transactions, all of the books of, of um, Dabanyoni close cooperation were above board. Now, they did not take into account that the person um, which received dollars that were not declared in our country, which is the holder, um, you know, must, must must be held also responsible because there's been cases whereby people who cannot, um, you know, verify um, or account where they got those dollars from were held accountable. So for us, we are viewing this as selective justice that SARS will now only target the person who did not declare the dollars, but the, 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 the receiver of the dollars is, um, is not mm. anyway scrutinized and their, their, their role in the entire issue is not at all scrutinized. All right, explain to me why your party is raising it at this particular juncture. Are you seeking simply to gain political capital and raise your profile? Not at all. Look, when the Palapala scandal came about, when it became public um, knowledge, we acted as an organization. We've even gone to court to challenge the, um, the public protector's report Um, And on this particular case, it is a matter of information that was brought to the public domain that this is what SARS did. So we issued that statement in response to what SARS has recently done, because initially SARS said those dollars were not declared and they did nothing. They said nothing. they They did not act. It's only now that now SARS is saying that they are now going to act 
against a person who came with dollars in our country and did not declare them. And at the same time, they are saying nothing again about the officials that would have been part of the processing of any foreign traveler coming to our country because fine SARS can deal with what that one individual. But what about the system? What about the employees that allowed these dollars to come into our country? So we are of the view that there needs to be a holistic approach when it comes to the person who brought the dollars, the person who received the dollars without any confirmation that these dollars were declared, including the SARS officials who were responsible to process any um, dollars that were coming into the country. Is it your contention that SARS is coming too late to the party on this issue? Not only is it coming too late, but it is behaving in a manner that is um, suspicious. Firstly, the question of the tax records of people, it is something that has always been said that it is um, it is private. Now, SARS were the ones that went to the public to confirm or to give confidence to the citizens that Mrs. Ramaphosa's um, Dabanyoni Trust or close cooperation was operating in line with the, with, the, with, with the tax regulations. It was not Mr. Ramaphosa on his own who went and gave that assurances. Now, how can it be that now SARS, any institution, will go to the public and give confidence that the, the taxes of certain individuals um, are in order? We've never had SARS um, doing anything of that nature to any citizen. Now, well, the view that the man in which they've handled this entire Palapala scandal um, is suspicious. SARS, of course, might contend that it's simply following due process. Due process, we understand due process when it's reasonable, but it is very unreasonable that something that happened in 2020 and was, um, you know, it, it, it was made out to be in the public in 22, June 22. It's only 2024 that we've got information now that SARS is now targeting the person who brought the, um, the, 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 the dollars. Because when that payer application was made public, that those dollars were not declared, SARS did not do anything. So how can SARS months later or years later only now it wants to follow due process? Because they should have been following the due process from the very first right. onset that this information became public. So very quickly then, what does your party want to see happen in the immediate future? There must be justice and SARS must conduct in a manner that is um, um, that gives confidence that they are not um, playing a political game whereby they are protecting the ones that are occupying public office. All right, we'll endeavour to reach out to the South African Revenue Service and Vuyu Zungula, thank you very much indeed from the African Transformation Movement. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The South African Human Rights Commission says it's concerned with the ongoing floods that affected Ladysmith, Dundee, Mandini and more recently those that occurred at the weekend in parts of the North Coast. With us now is SAHRC KZN Provincial Manager Pavashri Padiachi. And first off, why then does the Commission consider the ongoing floods in KZN a human rights issue? Well, there are various rights that are impacted when the disasters of floods impact communities or uh, respective areas. These would include your right to housing, your right to human dignity, your um, right to life as well. There are various socioeconomic rights that come into play um, under these circumstances, which is why the Commission does have great concern over these ongoing Mm. floods. Are you worried about some sort of deficiency or deficit? 
Well, I think it's something we have been monitoring since the April 2022 floods. Um, there have been many learning curves there where we found that um, at that time, the government and relevant stakeholders um, were sort of slower to respond to the crises. We were not as prepared as we ought to have been. Um, and it's something that has sparked the concern. And so we've been continually monitoring um, this issue to ensure that it's dealt with appropriately and so that human rights are not being violated and are in fact protected Mm. along the way. Can you give me a sense as to how there has been a a slowness or a tardiness in response and where you think the preparation has been lacking to mitigate? So I think the the slowness or the tardiness was more so uh, when the initial floods occurred earlier last year um, or the year before in April 2022. Um, And that was probably because of the lack of preparedness uh, to sort of deal with these sort of disasters. What we found in December when I think it was Christmas Eve, where the flash floods occurred in the Ladysmith Mm. areas, we found that um, there has been significant improvement in the government's responsiveness, um, as well as other stakeholders uh, to sort of assist the communities. They were much more responsive um, and the response was rapid. So we did find that there were significant improvements and we do need to acknowledge and appreciate these efforts. Could you give us a sense as to how these adverse weather conditions are specifically impacting the human rights, particularly of vulnerable communities in the affected areas? And of course, it's not just Ladysmith, it's wider than that, isn't it? Yes, look, I know um, there's Madideni, there is uh, the Stanga area, various other areas in the north coast. Um, uh, Dundee has also been affected. There's a number of areas that been that have been um, impacted and continue to be impacted by the adverse weather conditions. I think when we look at the nature of rights that are being affected, again, we are speaking to these communities who are most usually the, the vulnerable members of our society, where you find them being displaced. Uh, they do not have the necessary necessary resources or assistance to be able to um, find themselves um, adequate accommodation. Um, They are displaced of their homes, most of their personal belongings, if not all of their belongings. They need assistance with temporary accommodation and other basic necessities. So again, you go to human dignity, you go to the violation of the rights to privacy. Um, The lack of a better word is for them losing their houses. And then you find Um, that having been accommodated in temporary sort of structures, you find that the conditions are really meant to be temporary. They're not conducive for any form of long-term sort of living. And this is where the commission comes in to ensure the monitoring element in terms of whether or how long these communities will be sort of um, accommodated on a temporary sort of basis. When will they be accommodated to more suitable alternate accommodation? And what would be the more long-term plans uh, by the government to be able to accommodate these people? So to what extent then is the commission involved with affected communities in decision-making regarding response and discovery and moving forward? What kind of advice should you be and can you give them? So at this stage, we're going to be conducting extensive monitoring. The purpose of the monitoring is really to look at the impact of the damage caused by the floods. It's been an ongoing issue. Um, Apart from the communities having lost their homes, there's great infrastructure damage. Mm. We need to look at those issues. We need to look at the relief measures that are in place and the adequacy of these and the applicable timeframes, et cetera, in terms of how these issues are going to be resolved. The commission always remains available to communities, um, to stakeholders, to everyone at large, um, you know, in terms of assistance, where they're finding challenges, where they're not receiving the necessary assistance. 
Um, if I make one example, I know um, as of the, the December floods, the government has been on the ground providing counselling as well because the events have been so traumatic. Um, and this is very critical in being able to support these communities. And where you find communities have lost their ID documents, uh, they're not able to access their social grants, etc. If they're not able to receive the necessary assistance, then the Commission is always there to be able to assist them in facilitating these processes as well. And just a quick answer in conclusion, I imagine that better coordination between different authorities uh, should be improved for a more effective human rights uh, response. Often that doesn't happen. Yes, um, I think we, like I said initially, we have learned a lot since the April 22 floods. Um, there you did find there were many different organizations providing relief efforts. It wasn't a very coordinated approach because you found there were duplication of um, efforts. You found certain communities really, uh, receiving assistance and some being completely neglected um, and so forth. So it wasn't properly coordinated. I think with the effects of climate change, we certainly need to constantly intensify our disaster preparedness plans, uh, as well as our recovery and relief measures. Um, But I think that we are improving, uh, but it's something that we constantly need to be working on together. Thank you very much for joining us. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. Now, today, the civil rights group AfriForum is calling for television licenses to be scrapped, saying there are, and I quote, a woefully ineffective source of funding for the SABC. More now on this story from Ernst van Sale, who is AfriForum's head of public relations. Mr. van Sale, is your issue the concept of the license itself or the way in which the process is administered? Good afternoon, Jeremy. The the main issue is that we have a on the ground reality and a legislative or regulatory rea- reality. And the on the ground reality is that last year, 2023, uh, we had a 87% evasion rate when it comes to the paying of TV licenses. So, for example, of course, there needs to be a, a diversity of programs on the television that are available to the public, and it should be available to the the, the whole of South Africa. What then is a better funding model? in your opinion. So uh, what AfriForum is uh, attempting to do with our comments in this process is to bring a regulatory reality in line with the on-the-ground reality. As you pointed out, the on-the-ground reality is that 87% avoidance rate when it comes to paying of TV license fees. So that that system is not currently sustainable in regards to funding the SABC. Our alternative is an alternative that actually takes the SABC in a fresh new direction, a fresh new direction that's non-state centric and that is the the privatization of the SABC and that is at the heart of specifically this bill as well which is attempting to solve the problem of uh, that's being experienced by the SABC which is continued struggles with funding corruption mismanagement wasteful expenditure I mean you just need to peruse the headlines very briefly every year to see these stories very clearly in view and uh, it's a state-owned enterprise in crisis and it needs a, a fresh new direction so in other words, turn it into a commercial entity and do away with the notion of public broadcasting. 
well, not uh, completely do away with it, but definitely uh, send it in a privatizing direction where at the moment, the current state-centric model is not working. It's, it's, on, the, it's on the verge of non-existence where it, it, it's going to collapse. So it, but if it's, privatized, up, if it's privatized, it de facto becomes mm. a commercial broadcaster and it would have a different set of imperatives. Principally among that is to make money, which would then negate the whole concept of public broadcasting, would it not? Well, at the moment, the, the whole public broadcasting model doesn't seem to be working in South Africa. It's it's currently in a state of crisis, so you need to go into a different direction. Um, but there are many different alternatives and different ways in which that privatization could take uh, take form. So just for an example, I think a, a valuable uh, uh, service that the, the SABC provides is all the different programming in different languages in a country as diverse as South Africa. Which a commercial broadcaster ways. would probably change choose not to do because often it has very little revenue potential and small audiences. No, well, that's what I'm getting to is that there are alternatives, privatizing alternatives that give the new life and actually sustainability to those uh, to those stations. So one of those examples would be turning those stations into non-profit organizations that can still be subsidized and supported by the government, but not under the total and centralized control of the SABC. They would rather be put under the control of the communities that they serve. And this is this is a privatizing direction. It's not just uh, uh, when you take this direction, it's not just one option that's on the table. There are many forms that it can take, but at the root of it is the decentralization of a, a bloated SOE that can't get corruption and wastage of money would and it, Would it not make control? more sense and would it not be easier simply to fix the collection side of this? Well, that, that's what the SABC has tried to do over decades and it, it, it's only getting worse. The, the evasion rate was 82% uh, two years ago and now it's at 87% a year ago. It's, it, it doesn't seem to be able to get, uh, get the problem under control. Therefore, you need to go alternative route. The definition of ins- insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting different results. All right. Well, you certainly have raised the issue. Ernst van Sale from AfriForum, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. There has been much praise for the South African brought case in The Hague, seeking to have the to seeking to have Israel declared guilty of genocide. But there are questions today being asked about how well the country has grasped this particular issue. I want to talk now to Professor Andre Thomashausen, who is a Professor Emeritus of Comparative and International Law at UNISA. Professor, a warm welcome to you. And maybe let's start with this. What are the key aspects of international conflict that, in your opinion, the South African legal team seems to have a lack of understanding of? There are... Fundamentally, there are three three problems, three flaws. The first one, one could think is procedural, but it's actually essential and material. Article 9 of the Genocide Convention, to give you jurisdiction, because it gives jurisdiction to anybody who signed the convention, even if they're not directly involved in a conflict. To give you that jurisdiction, you must be in a dispute about the uh, application of the Genocide Convention, whether mm-hmm. anything has been done to offend it. And that dispute, of course, is not just... Uh, a sentiment that somebody has or carries with him, but it requires interaction. And South Africa stands basically accused of having been dishonest in this regard. They they sent a, a diplomatic communication called a note verbal to Israel on the 22nd of December. They immediately got a reply saying that uh, within a few days there would be an engagement. Uh, then they had this engagement which proposed a meeting 
on the level of directors general of foreign affairs and um, and uh, when uh, when Israel wanted to set a date for this they were told on the 27th of December that uh, Durko departments was on holiday there was nobody to receive any communications and um, and they refused to accept the letter and then two days later on the 29th the uh, the application in the ICJ was filed and that that is sort of a very basic thing you you cannot just run to court if you if you think somebody owes you money you first have to to issue a letter of demand and you have to set a a time period a fair time period so this is a, a very big uh, fundamental flaw and it might sink the case because the court might say well, we've been involved in this without uh, without South Africa honestly having gone about discussing right. the issues with with Israel then the the uh, the other two flaws of course are that you have to prove genocidal intent and Israel can can demonstrate with vast amounts of evidence that they have done so much and a lot to to mitigate the civilian casualties and to mitigate the suffering of the people and to to limit their their self-defense activities to to the target of Hamas and it will be very difficult to to overcome this and to then still show intent um, the South African team has has then quoted um, quite a few statements they've they've overlooked that a state is only represented by its president its prime minister and its minister of foreign affairs it is irrelevant what other people say the fact that mr malema shouts his head off that the boers must be killed doesn't attribute any intent to the state of south africa so um, when they cite uh, prime minister netanyahu they they suddenly did, did a crucial mistake of citing out of context and, and shortening uh, the whole thing to give it a different meaning the the reference to the mm -hmm. amalek story which is in the bible and yes the one bible basis uh, says that god destroyed the amalek but the other one says that the Amalek um, attacked Israelis, or at that time, uh, Jews, and and uh, and treacherously destroyed and killed them. And it is clear from the context of the Netanyahu quote that he meant to warn the soldiers to be careful because they will be attacked from behind. So this weakens the case. The case, as such, of course, comes from a noble intent, but um, but there was probably too much emotion and not enough reflection. How difficult would it be to prove genocidal intent? Look, I've I've done this for uh, for my whole life, and I've read hundreds of of PhD draft dissertations and mm. masters draft dissertations on on a university level. I would have thrown out this paper because uh, it it doesn't make the case. It doesn't overcome um, the the facts that contradict genocidal intent. Not uh, not every insult is uh, is an assault. Not every homicide is a murder. Not every military use of military force, not every war crime is a genocide. Genocide is is a most particular crime that was that was uh, legislated upon in this convention of 1948, uh, inspired by what happened in the Holocaust uh, with the Jewish people in Germany. So it is very difficult to to actually uh, come to that threshold. Fortunately, uh, there are not really genocides that often. Um, yes, Rwanda maintains it was a genocide, and probably most scholars would agree because there a government said, go and kill the cockroaches wherever you find them. And, and they acted accordingly and, and killed a million people. But, but here in, in the Gaza case, um, 
There may have been overreaches by, by the Israeli Defense Force. It, there may have been wiser alternatives. But, um, but I don't think South Africa or the world could have expected Israel after the 7th of October to sit back and say, thank you for reminding us that, that the Palestine issue is not resolved. Uh, we will now um, negotiate with you. How will the court balance the legal principle then of self-defense as far as Israel is concerned to the phrase that you've just used, overreach? The court will not do that. The court will have to determine whether whether there is a a sufficient basis to to fear that genocide might be in the process of being committed or might be committed in the future, and that is the basis for interim measures. And uh, at the moment, despite all the suffering and the horrors in Gaza, I don't see the genocidal intent as having been demonstrated. Um, this will be frustrating for the court because uh, essentially the court will have to say, you've approached us with a very serious crisis, but you, you've based it on the wrong legal foundation. The genocide convention can't help you here. Um, if, as the Ukraine did in its action in the ICJ against Russia, if, if they had... Uh, argued principles of, of aggression, of acts of aggression, principles of war crimes, it's, it's a different story and you move to, to other international legal instruments. And of course, there's the principle of the maintenance of peace and security, which is the, the prime responsibility of, uh, of the United Nations Security Council uh, that should be engaged on this and uh, one should actually discuss very actively, uh, especially with America, the dispatch of a peacekeeping force to Gaza. If there is a multinational peacekeeping force stationed in Gaza, then obviously Israel will not be, be able to, to risk uh, injuring that force uh, with, with aerial bombardments. So uh, it's, it's um, as Minister Lamola is already saying, and in a way he is defensive about it, he says, well, at least we brought the, the, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza to the attention of the world. Um, fine. That uh, that is true. Um, everybody is talking and thinking right. about it, but it's not achieving the purported objective. Professor, thank you very much for joining us. MoneyWeb at midday for all your up-to-date stories. Artificial intelligence is arguably one of today's most important technological advancements, but a leading bioethicist is warning that there are a lack of guidelines on its use for healthcare in South Africa. Professor Kaimantri Mudli is the head of medical ethics at Stellenbosch University and joins us now. And firstly, Professor, why have you seen fit to raise these concerns? Well, as you know, AI uh, in healthcare brings with it lots of potential benefit to patients and to healthcare systems and healthcare providers. But um, it also has a few, um, you know, risks that are associated, and we need to ensure that we balance the benefits and the risks as we do with any health intervention. For this purpose, it's important that we have guidelines for healthcare professionals and for manufacturers of AI devices, and that we have a legal framework so that uh, we ensure, you know, safety of products as we do with other medication. What principally are the risks that uh, are of concern to you? So, there are a number of risks to consider. Uh, Some of these go back to the data that is used to build algorithms for AI technologies. And as you know, we need to collect very large volumes of data Mm. 
to build these algorithms. Now, the quality of the data is extremely important in healthcare because we have to ensure that we have data that is adequately representative of all the different ethnic groups in our population, uh, of gender as well, uh, of ages, to ensure that we have good data that we're feeding into algorithms so that we can produce uh, good AI technologies using these algorithms. And so the quality of the data we collect is important. This means that, you know, I'm sure you're familiar that when you usually go to your doctor or your hospital or your clinic, you're often filling in, or they're often working with paper-based records. Yes. Now, to work in, in the field of AI, we need to transition to electronic health records. We need to be able to collect this data, store it, and use it uh, efficiently. And so there are a number of ethical considerations uh, linked to the data collection, as well as getting consent from patients, etc. And so there's a huge amount of work that we have to do in this area to move towards development of electronic health records throughout our health system. The difficulty that your sector is facing, I imagine, is to balance this rapid take-up, the implementation of AI and all the innovations it brings with what you're referring to as the need for adequate safety checks. And maybe it's erring too much on uh, adopting at speed and not looking in the rearview mirror. Absolutely. So, so the technological development is progressing at lightning speed, as you can see. Um, you know, uh, there's a huge emphasis on the profound benefits that AI will bring and massive investment in the technology. But what is being left behind is the governance. And the governance is, you know, re- refers to the, the guidelines and the laws that need to be in place in order to ensure that um, we have, uh, you know, robust safety checks, that there are also the legal provisions that are made for liability issues that may arise in the event of harm to to patients. Do you know what kind of work, if any at all, the Health Professions Council is doing in this respect? Well, it's not clear to, to anybody uh, at this point in time. We have received no communication from the Health Professions Council of South Africa. Uh, As far as I know, we're unaware that guidelines are being developed. They might be, but we're unaware of such guideline development occurring. Uh, We do know that there are guidelines for telehealth. You know, these were implemented especially because during COVID, there was a, a large need to implement telehealth consulting in the healthcare profession. Uh, but apart from those telehealth uh, guidelines, we don't really have anything specific for AI technologies as yet. You talk about a concept called ethical debt. What is that? Oh, now this usually occurs when uh, we have technology developing faster than consideration is made for the ethics. So technical debt occurs when we release technical products that are not yet completely safe. And ethical debt occurs when we are not taking into account the ethical considerations when we design new technologies in healthcare. Professor Mudley, thank you very much for your insight. And just before we go, other stories on our radar. There is confirmation now that two Transnet freight rail trains travelling on the export coal line collided Sunday. The crash followed a change in shift. 
and former United States President Donald Trump has decisively won the Iowa caucuses, cementing his Republican frontrunner status as he bids to retake the White House in 2024. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Goodbye to you. Thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.